please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning's sermon is Isaiah 59, 14 through 21. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and, right, and, <laughs> and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his uprightness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repay to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. morning. Uh, I would encourage you as we get started. I know some of you like to read on your phone. Uh, we're going to be hopping around a little bit in Isaiah 59, and it could be difficult. I really want you to see uh, the words of the text, that I'm not just making these up, that these thoughts aren't coming from me. So I'd encourage you, if you want to grab a hardback Bible uh, out of the seat back in front of you, if you don't have a copy, We'll be looking at Isaiah 59 and 60 primarily. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, I do pray that you would speak. You have spoken to our fathers in the past, and you speak still through your word. And we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to open our ears and to open our hearts to receive the grace that you have for us in this text. So I ask for your help. Please come now and speak. In Jesus' name, amen. What role does preaching play in the story of everything? Of all possible means, why is it that God expands his kingdom through preaching? Why is preaching a constant among God's people, both as the food by which the body grows and the way by which the body adds members? Can we tr really trust preaching and preachers as God's means he has used and will use to redeem all things? And if yes, why is that? I chose for a, a title this morning for my sermon, Preaching in the Story of Everything, 
I felt that was only slightly more ambitious than trying to preach all of Romans 8 in one sermon. When I say preaching, I'm speaking in an inclusive way. By preaching, I mean both preaching in the formal sense and in the informal sense. Formally, preaching is what happens when a holy man has prepared a sermon, he stands up in a pulpit and says, come experience God with me in this text. It's the type of thing that Paul charges the church in 1 Timothy 5, uh, show double honor to the men who labor in this activity. And not everyone fits in that category. Informally, preaching is a mom reading a good night story to her young children and telling them, beloved, this Jesus, this Jesus in the text, he lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And if you repent and believe in him, you'll live. This type of preaching, proclaiming, we might say witnessing, is the task of every believer. God calls all believers to play a part in advancing his mission by having the word of Christ ever on their lips, by teaching, by admonishing, by praising. In doing so, the whole body acts as the fragrant aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What we will see in Isaiah 59 this morning is that this strategy, preaching, is not arbitrary. It's not accidental that the church matures and multiplies by preaching. Preaching as the program for God's people is God's idea. It's rooted in an eternal intertrinitarian determination in God. What we will see is the role of preaching in the story of everything. We'll see that God saves repentant sinners out of a broken covenant and into an eternal, unbreakable covenant for the sake of his name and for the joy of all peoples. He determined to achieve this mission by sending his son as a preacher who would accomplish the good news that he preached and make countless little preachers to proclaim the gospel for all eternity. Or we might say, God saves repentant sinners by his spirit-anointed preacher son who buys them out of slavery to sin and makes them little preachers for the joy of the world. First, let's see the story of everything and then we'll see how preaching fits into that story. The vision of Isaiah was written in the last four decades of the 8th century BC. Ray Ortland, I think, summarizes the context well when he writes, Isaiah preached in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Judah during the closing decades of the 8th century BC. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Judah was still basking in a long-sustained prosperity, but the good times were nearly over, and the people sensed it. They lived in a pivotal moment and in a threatening world. The crisis of their generation 
was the rising Assyrian Empire to the east. And these four kings of Judah proved how mixed the nation's response was. Trust in God complicated by deeper trust in themselves. Our passage today is situated in the latter portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, which are written from the perspective of the exile. These chapters assume that God had fulfilled his promise to exile the people for their covenant disloyalty. So the context is Israel's broken covenant. A covenant, we might say, refers to a binding relationship with promises and obligations. We saw in our series through Exodus that God called Israel to be his special possession, a kingdom of priests who would mediate his blessing to a watching world. He called them to walk in his ways, and in return, he promised to bless them with long life in the land, economic prosperity, abundant fruitfulness, and peace from their enemies. Israel was slated to be God's vehicle for fulfilling his promise to bring blessing to all the nations by bringing them into a relationship with God through the offspring of Abraham. Abraham and Israel were a reset on the original creation program. God's people in God's place enjoying God's presence. And yet, even before the covenant was finalized at Sinai, Israel rebelled and worshiped an idol of their own making. As early as Deuteronomy, God told Moses that his people would not remain faithful to the covenant. Indeed, they could not. And so they would suffer the separation from him for their disloyalty and wickedness. We see this bitter fruit of broken covenant in Isaiah 59. Let's look at verse 1. First, the prophet lays out some of the characteristics of covenant breakers. He says in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He's saying, the problem is, is not on God's end. I don't want you to think that your situation right now is because God somehow uh, missed the ball or took his eye off of you. But, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Then in verse 9, the prophet continues to draw out the experience of living in a broken covenant separated from God. Verse 9, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, 
And behold, darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Their sins have made them more animal than human. This is what sin does. Objectively, it severs one's relationship with God. God is perfect in his moral purity and righteous as the judge of all humanity. He cannot tolerate sin. Sin creates a separation, a great divide between God and the sinner. Subjectively, it leads to a defiled conscience, to deep, deep shamefulness, the daily distress of a dirtiness that cannot be washed off. Now, it's true that many Israelites in this broken covenant had only ever played fast and loose with God's covenant expectations. They cooperated in the religious system to get ahead. Their attitude towards sin was basically, meh, it's not a big deal. Throw another goat on the pyre. And he says at the beginning of Isaiah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They're abominable. I don't even want them anymore. And even though such hard-heartedness wasn't true of every Israelite, they all experienced the distress of living in a covenant they couldn't keep. They grew up taking little lambs into their home, only to have to slit their throats as an object lesson for the cost of their sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10 tells us that even faithful Israelites never walked in the joy of a completely clean conscience. They weren't stupid. They knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away the stain of human rebellion against a holy God. Their sacrifices were just a reminder year after year that they had fallen terribly short of the glory of God. And you don't have to have been born 2,700 years ago in Jerusalem to have this experience, do you? Can you empathize with the Israelite plight? What is it like living in a broken covenant, separated from the author of life? It's the distress of a defiled conscience 
It's knowing that you haven't just done wrong, but you are wrong. And no matter how hard you try, you cannot fix yourself. If texts like this do anything, they put to death the notion that what makes someone a Christian is that they once didn't try to do good religious things, now they do try to do good religious things. As though they can just clean up their act, set themselves on the straight and narrow. Young people, would you listen carefully to me? Because you have faithful parents, many of you will grow up never knowing a time when you don't regularly meet with the church. You will come in week in and week out and hear God's word and worship with his people. In this type of environment, there will be times when you feel your conscience pricked by a teaching or a song or a conversation. You will feel not just like you've done wrong, but that you are wrong, that you are dirty and broken. You will feel like there is no hope for ever feeling right or good again. Would you promise me something this morning in your hearts? Would you promise me that when you feel that, lost, dirty, broken, promise me that you won't spend your life trying to clean yourself up with more religious activity. That's not what your parents want for you. And it's not what your pastors want for you. The Bible obliterates the possibility of ever cleaning yourself up with religious activities. It's impossible. Those feelings are a gift to drive you to Jesus. Let those feelings drive you to trust Jesus to clean you and to heal you and to make you right. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not pursue a relationship with God based on your works. Believe in the blood of Jesus. Now, even if you are here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I know that you have tasted something of this bitter experience. I know that you have tasted this because Romans 2, 14 and 15 tells me that God's law is actually written on your heart. You do what you know you shouldn't. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul actually says that the impression of God's law on the human heart is so strong that we know that we deserve death for our sin. And apart from Christ, we alleviate these feelings of dread by gathering together communities of approving voices to drown out God's voice written on our hearts. Israel's broken covenant relationship with God in Isaiah 59 is not unique. It's a microcosm. It's a vignette. It's an object lesson of all of humanity's broken covenant with God. The prophet Hosea can say concerning Israel in chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, and there they dealt faithlessly with me. 
Adam transgressed a covenant and dealt faithlessly with God. And Paul walks out the implications of that in Romans 5, 16 and 17. He says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. No one is exempted. Adam represented us. We're all born into a rebellious race. We're all born under a sentence of death. And we live out of that fallen identity. We are corrupted in Adam's corruption, and we all walk in his rebellious footsteps as soon as we are old enough to sin. This is why in building a case for the universal need for alien righteousness to be imputed to us in Romans 3, Paul actually quotes this text describing everyone. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Isaiah 59. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, and desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This describes everyone apart from Christ. All are under sin, both the power of sin and the con condemnation of sin. We are sinners separated from God and broken covenant is our story. But broken covenant isn't the end of the story. God's righteous displeasure moves him to act for the sake of his name. Look at verse 15, chapter 59, verse 15. First, in verse 15, the Lord sees. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then the Lord acts, verse 16, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. And then the, the so in verse 19 signals the results of God's action. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. God will act and the result will be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, which is nothing less than the conversion of people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. Isaiah 60 portrays this with vivid imagery. It portrays people from all the nations coming to bless 
the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ and his people, and to receive eternal life and fullness of joy in a new covenant with him. In Revelation, John employs some of the same language to portray the same reality. Revelation 21, you can go read it this afternoon. The people of God in the new creation. So let's, let's capture just a glimpse of this uh, in Isaiah 60, verses 17, where we'll start and go to 22. Speaking to the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, he says, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time, I will hasten it. This is the unbreakable, eternal covenant relationship that God has promised to every believer. Verse 19 we won't grope in darkness, but God himself will be our everlasting light. His glory will delight us. We won't cry or mourn or suffer. Verse 21, we won't sin anymore. We will all be righteous. We will inherit the earth. Verse 22, we will all be fruitful for the Lord what he originally intended for us in Genesis 1. The Lord says, I am the Lord, and in its time I will hasten it. And together with the exiles, we say, how, Lord? How will you hasten it? Look back at chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. This is the hinge between the broken covenant of Isaiah 59 and the glorious, unbreakable covenant of Isaiah 60. It is the bridge over the great divide that separates sinners from God. God revealed this so that we would know how he intends to get us from Isaiah 59 to Isaiah 60. How do we get from the eternal misery that 59 leads to and the eternal bliss of chapter 60. Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, 
who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, there are a lot of pronouns flying around in these verses, so let's get clear on who's speaking to whom about whom. I think that's right. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant. This is Yahweh speaking, the Lord who came into frame back in verse 15 as the initiator of salvation. The Lord, the agent who begins speaking in verse 20, is the one saying, as for me, in verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them. Presumably the them is those in verse 20, those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That is repentant sinners. But the repentant sinners, the them, is in the third person. They are the, the content of a conversation between the Lord and a third party. The Lord says to the third party, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Now I'm about to get nerdy for a second. If you don't follow this linguistic tidbit, take it as a positive indication that you're actually normal. All right. The question is, who is the you being spoken to? The long answer is that it's not the people, plural, people, because in Hebrew, the you is singular. It's a singular pronoun. Unlike in Hebrew, second person pronouns, you in English, are ambiguous. We just say you when referring to anyone or any group of ones in any grammatical gender. Unless you're a Southerner who says y'all, which is an excellent second person plural pronoun. And it's not the you in chapter 60, verse 1, because the you in chapter 60, verse 1, is actually feminine in the Hebrew. It's the people personified as the feminine city of Zion. We are left without any doubt though, about who this is, because the masculine singular you in verse 21, who God has given his word and his spirit, speaks up in chapter 61, verse 1. Look at 61.1. This is the you speaking. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. 
And this isn't Isaiah the prophet. We know that with certainty because Jesus Christ, the God-man, takes up this text in Luke 4 as the definitive description of what he came to earth to do. We are left to conclude that the, the you in verse 21, 59, 21, is God the Son. And this conversation in verses 20 and 21 is a window into an inner Trinitarian determination to accomplish the unbreakable new covenant. Our one God, the Holy Trinity, determined from eternity to save sinners by sending God the Son, clothed and empowered by God the Spirit as a gospel preacher. That is what we are catching a glimpse of here. But he's not only a preacher. He's a preacher who accomplishes the message that he preaches. What title is he given in verse 20? A redeemer will come to Zion. God the Son will come as a redeemer. To redeem is to purchase out of slavery to free from bondage by the payment of a price. Jesus is a jubilee preacher who preaches freedom. He comes to announce freedom from the curse of the law and freedom from slavery to sin. On what ground? How can he announce such freedom when the cost is so high? On what basis? Can the son preach such a message? What price did the Redeemer pay? Perhaps the, the clearest place we see this in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 53. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this. We'll look at Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. We see here, that the anointed son accomplished the message that he preached. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, this, this substitutionary death in our place was the son's greatest sermon. So Spurgeon says, he preached from the bloody tree with hands and feet fastened there. He delivered the most wonderful discourse of justice 
and love, of vengeance and grace, of death and of life that was ever preached in this poor world. Oh yes, he preached. He always preached with all of his heart, with all of his soul and with all of his heart, he preached. So what is this, what role does this preaching play in the story of everything? Jesus Christ bore the curse and wrath that us ruined sinners deserved for breaking God's covenant. Even though he never disobeyed, not even once. And now he holds out righteousness and life to all who will turn from their transgressions and trust in him. He takes previously ruined sinners like us, like me, and he makes them little preachers. He actually makes us part of his mission. The father promises in Isaiah 59, verse 21, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth they shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The father promised his spirit and his words to his son's offspring. And we are his offspring if we repent and believe in him. This is why we speak and sing and pray the gospel over our children. This is why we evangelize relatives and coworkers, sometimes at great personal cost. This is why we meet here week after week to hear God's word and to attend to the preaching. This is why we send and support missionaries who translate the Bible and teach theology. This is why we support church plants like Exalting Christ. This is the reason that institutions like Bethlehem College and Seminary even exist. This is why we pray and we give and we send and we go. As little anointed ones, we get to play a part. You get to play a part. The question is, Will you? And how will you play your part? How can you more conform your life to this mission, initiated by a Trinitarian determination to save sinners, proclaimed by our anointed one, Jesus Christ, and gifted to his offspring, the church. I praise God for Bethlehem College and Seminary. I hope that it serves as a handmaiden for the church for generations to come. But God doesn't need BCS to accomplish his mission to redeem the world. He has given the church all she needs. We are redeemed by the blood we are anointed by his spirit and we are commissioned for his glory. We get to deliver the good news. We get to walk 
in the gospel-proclaiming footsteps of the Son of God, we get to plead for others to be reconciled to God. May we fix our eyes on our anointed preacher and his gospel as we work tirelessly to proclaim the message through which God saves repentant sinners out of Isaiah 59 and into the eternal, unbreakable covenant of Isaiah 60. Please pray with me.